Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the show that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they say on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin, a journalist with over two decades of experience. I started covering crypto five years ago and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. Unchained and Unconfirmed are now published as videos. If you're not yet subscribed to the Unchained YouTube channel, head to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained podcast and subscribe today. Crypto.com, the crypto super app that lets you buy, earn and spend crypto. Earn up to 8.5% per year on your Bitcoin. Download the Crypto.com app now. Blocknative is the easiest way to build and trade with mempool data. Hundreds of the top DeFi projects and traders have integrated Blocknative's API. Learn why at blocknative.com. Today's guest is Rowan Gray, assistant professor at Willamette Law. Welcome, Rowan. Thanks for having me. Last week, representatives Rashida Tlaib, Jesus Chewy Garcia, and Stephen Lynch introduced the Stablecoin Tethering and Bank Licensing Enforcement Act, or Stable Act, in the House. It would require stablecoin issuers to obtain a banking charter require approval for them from the Federal Reserve, and require issuers to have FDIC insurance, among other things. You were an advisor for this bill. What problems do you see with stablecoins that necessitates this bill? Yeah, I mean, the the starting point here is to understand that stablecoins fit into a longer history of uh, what might be called financial innovation or more specifically monetary innovation, where actors who uh, don't have traditional bank licenses and therefore the Uh, regulatory and supervisory oversight that comes with those licenses, Uh, engage in activities that are effectively banking activities. We saw that uh, with a range of shadow banking activities in the uh, 20th century and in the early 21st century, uh, and they were a major contributor to the global financial crisis, notably uh, the money market mutual fund market. Uh, So this bill comes out of a recognition that historically one of the major sources of systemic risk in the financial system is actors that issue instruments that are designed to walk and talk like money, like public money, that is to say denominated in the government's unit of account, promising or giving a reasonable expectation of being uh, redeemable or withdrawable on demand into uh, the government's currency that, frankly, don't have the ability to guarantee that. Uh, such that when there is a moment of crisis, either internal to that system, that is to say that market or that ecosystem or that instrument becomes destabilized, or the larger economy becomes destabilized and it hits that instrument or ecosystem, uh, that the people who use that instrument tend to become uh, the victims and ultimately uh, a shield by the actors that issued those instruments and profited when the times are good uh, to become too big to fail and ultimately need a government bailout. So the the, the hard lesson of banking history is if you want to engage in banking activities, the only way to ensure that those activities don't harm consumers in moments of crises is to have government support 
and to connect those activities directly to the actor that can issue government currency in exchange for appropriate levels of regulation and oversight. And so now when we look at the rise of the stablecoin industry, we're seeing uh, with actors like Libra, but also actors like Tether and going down to the sort of quote-unquote decentralized networks like MakerDAO and DAI, uh, that these uh, these networks and, and instruments are growing in popularity and are quickly becoming a major source of systemic risk. And so this bill is aiming to address those problems before the crisis, before the bailout, before uh, individual consumers are on the hook. And you don't work in Congress, so how did you become involved in this bill? Uh, I've had the pleasure of working with Congresswoman Tlaib's office and her great staff uh, on a number of uh, other bills. We started actually working on the uh, Automatic Booster Communities Act bill in the early uh, 2020, which was a bill designed to provide emergency relief to every person in America of $2,000. Uh, when we were designing that bill, one of the issues that we came you know, running into headfirst was the issue of unbanked groups that also were entitled to receive relief or should receive relief, uh, who were not eligible to receive that money dur- through a direct deposit. Uh, and we looked at different options for how to provide that relief. And one of the things that we settled on that we thought was the most respecting of people's uh, unique circumstances and privacy was prepaid debit cards that would be distributed to people through an emergency responder call. Uh, as well as a series of locations, including post offices, that they could come and pick them up. So literally putting them in people's hands, not just sort of sending them out and hoping they get there, uh, where people would basically register through signing an affidavit that would go into a lockbox and not become part of a centralised database. And this was a way to ensure people who are undocumented, people who work and live on the margins of society, could have access to the emergency cash relief that they deserve without turning it into a tool of surveillance uh, and control. Uh, but we recognize, of course, that prepaid debit cards themselves are still imperfect, even though they're the best technology available at the moment. So the bill included a provision directing the Treasury to develop and implement a system of bearer instrument e-cash, government-issued e-cash, that would function as close to a regular physical currency as possible in the sense of being anonymous and not requiring a centralized counterparty to approve all transactions. And we required that that would be available through the Treasury, through licensed banks, through money transmitters, but also capable of being self-hosted on cheap open source hardware and open source software, and that the process would be overseen by an independent privacy board uh, to ensure that it retains the features of cash as much as possible. So we believe very deeply in privacy and digital cash, but we think that the right way to do that and the most stable way to do that for the overall economy is to create a public digital cash, uh, just like we saw in the 19th century when the the sort of thousands of different banknotes issued by private banks were ultimately replaced with national banknotes and eventually Federal Reserve. And I also have the option to work with her. Sorry. So would you, like in the crypto world, is that what what people would recognize as a central bank digital dollar or, or central bank digital currency or CBDC? Well, we use the term digital fiat currency because when you start talking about central bank digital currency, the obvious implication is that it's going to be issued by the central bank and it's going to be under the purview exclusively of the central bank. And I don't particularly love central banks. And and when you ask a central banker what they think about the future of Internet technology, they'll say a better bank account. Whereas what we're talking about is actually digital cash. And if you look at the United States, for example, the entities responsible for issuing physical currency have been the Mint and the Bureau of Engraving and Printing, both of which are based out of the US Treasury. And when it comes to questions like maintaining civil liberties and dealing with things like distributing emergency cash relief to millions of people, those are the kinds of macroeconomic policies typically administered by the Treasury. And so while we do believe in the importance of giving everyone access to the Federal Reserve through Fed accounts, 
and through something like postal banking. E-cash specifically really should be under the purview of Treasury. And more importantly, it requires a set of political discussions about the balance between freedom and privacy and law enforcement and public policy that, frankly, a group of independent, uh, quote-unquote independent uh, central bankers who mostly come from uh, the, either a background in macroeconomic theory, which is usually statistical modelling, or who have come from the banking industry aren't well-equipped to make decisions about on behalf of the entire public. So we put this under the Treasury because we think that it's something that the, the entire public policy apparatus should be involved in. Um, but yes, it's in the same vein as central bank digital currency, yes. Okay. And in introducing this bill, Representative Rashida Tlaib said it would prevent stablecoin issuers from repeating the crimes against low and moderate income residents of color that big banks have perpetrated. How does turning stablecoin issuers into banks prevent them from repeating those crimes? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, if you actually look at the history of shadow banking, one of the things we see is that while the actors that often engage directly in the shadow banking activity don't have a banking license, they typically don't survive without some degree of support or enabling from the traditional banking sector, which benefits from effectively offshoring or off-balance sheeting the activities that they know they wouldn't be able to engage in if they were doing it under the limelight because it's systemically risky. And so you see this right now with various uh, fintech and payments companies, what they call the kind of rent-a-bank uh, charter phenomenon, where actors sort of piggyback on top of banks and they either get no regulation or they get a much weaker form of money transmitter license. But their entire business model is dependent on an underlying bank supporting them. And we see this already in the crypto space, particularly among stable coins, where the entire ecosystem is, is highly dependent on on-ramps and off-ramps and in many situations dependent on underlying assets that are guaranteed by banks or issued directly by banks. And so what this is about is, on one hand, trying to make sure that activities that are banking activities be regulated as banking activities, but it's also to prevent existing financial institutions from hiding behind fintech as an excuse of skirting regulations they already should be accountable for. And earlier when you were talking about how the idea for this bill came out of previous examples in history, obviously now the technology is quite different. So do you just fundamentally believe that smart contracts and public auditable blockchains cannot solve some of these problems that we've seen previously when this technology didn't exist? Yes, that's right. 100% of shadow banking activities, uh, shadow banking entities throughout history believe that this time was different and that their business model rendered them uniquely uh, unnecessarily, uh, not needing to get and the so, kind of regulation why, traditional why, banks have. Why do you not believe that this technology, you know, as I mentioned, if you have a smart contract that enforces rules, if you have a public ledger that is auditable by anybody, why would that not solve these issues? Because fundamentally, the question here is about who can guarantee the promise. And the promise in question, the promise that this bill focuses on, is if you take money from someone and promise that they can get that money back or something that functions like that money back on demand. And what we've seen throughout history is any business model, any theory of collateralization or asset backing, or any theory, frankly, of intermediation of that process is going to carry some kind of risk. So on one hand, you have actors that are issuing uh, uh, stable coins that are backed by some pool of collateral, and their theory is, well, this time our theory of collateral backing is going to be safe enough. Oh, if it's two and a half to one, that's th that could never possibly go under. Well, we've seen systemic crises where instruments that were believed to be safe were not safe, right, where, where, where those kinds of collateral backing simply were not good enough. But even if you had something that was one-to-one -one backed, 
you're also talking about technology that is not perfect, that it has faults. If there was one coding error that caused some sort of lockdown of an entire part of one of these blockchains, people could lose hundreds of billions of dollars if these uh, systems became as popular as their proponents want them to be. And all you need is one error or one person engaging some kind of fraud there, and the average person is going to be the one losing their savings, losing the money in their account or in their wallet, which is why, historically speaking, the way that we've dealt with that problem is to have the federal government who can actually issue money who can say we're the only ones who can promise that when you have something that says this is a promise for $10, we can ensure that you have $10 by the end of the day to ensure those deposits, to ensure those liabilities. So it's really not about whether you think your theory of asset backing or collateralization is safe enough. It's about whether you can actually guarantee under all circumstances that you are not going to have the kinds of systemic failures that could mean that your business model didn't work as advertised. So in a moment, we'll discuss how this intersects with existing regulatory regimes. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Crypto.com, the crypto super app that lets you buy, earn and spend crypto all in one place. Earn up to 8.5% per year on your BTC. Download the Crypto.com app now to see the interest rates you could be earning on BTC and more than 20 other coins. Once in the app, you can apply for the Crypto.com metal card which pays you up to 8% cash back instantly. Reserve yours now in the Crypto.com app. Back to my conversation with Rowan Gray. Some of some of these companies that issue these types of dollars, in fact, most of them uh, that you are targeting already fall under existing regulatory regimes such as m- money transmitter licensing regime or some stablecoin issuers also have trust charters. Why are the existing regulations insufficient? Well, the first thing is there isn't a federal money transmitter uh, licensing regime. There are 50 state regulatory regimes, all of which uh, are not harmonised with each other and generally create a race to the bottom dynamic. There are some states where you can have as little as a few thousand dollars and that would be enough to get a money transmitter licence. And there are states that don't even really look at what kinds of assets you have backing those instruments. But even in the best case scenarios, even in the situations where every dollar has to be backed dollar for dollar at a bank account, those bank accounts are actually not guaranteed up to the full value of those dollars. They're guaranteed up into the limits of deposit insurance, which means that if there is something wrong with, say, that bank, say you choose a fraudulent bank or something like that, and that bank goes under, then the entire float that could be, again, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars will not be guaranteed beyond whatever the cap of deposit insurance is. So you're creating a whole secondary layer of intermediary risk there. And this is one of the reasons why in other countries where we've seen a similar kind of issue with mobile money, what often ends up happening is those actors either have an explicit partnership with a bank, they become a bank, or the central bank creates new regulations to give them the ability to have their own licenses at the federal level, which is exactly what this bill does. There are some people that are saying that we should be having a federal money transmitter license instead. Now, I think that's not as good as what we're proposing for two reasons. The first is that these actors are not just money transmitters in the sense that they are also going to be engaging in certain kinds of uh, risk-shifting activity between them and whatever the underlying bank is is that they would be depositing their funds at. Um, And the second thing is that uh, even if they had a money transmitter license, they would ultimately have to be under the same sort of regulatory scrutiny by the Federal Reserve and by banking regulators to ensure that their activities don't become risky to the banking system and to the financial system more broadly. So what we're proposing to do is to put those regulations within the banking charter system, and the bill specifically allows 
regulators to create exemptions from existing capital and liquidity and leverage rules for narrow banks, for actors that engage in stablecoin issuance, such that they would be functionally able to act as payments banks or narrow banks, but they would be doing so within the banking regulatory framework rather than trying to create a whole new federal money transmitter uh, licensing scheme out of whole cloth. And frankly, if you look at the history of those money transmitter laws, most of them emerged out of a regulatory loophole within existing bank deposit laws. And they, most actors that use those laws do so specifically with the intent of skirting the more robust regulatory framework of a banking license. PayPal, for example, uh, regularly engages in activity that really should be called banking, even under money transmitter law. And it does so because it can hide amongst the hedge of 50 state money transmitter regulations. Yeah, what's fascinating about the bill is that it can apply to things like uh, representations of the dollar in accounts like PayPal, which have existed for a long time. But we don't have enough time to get into that in this show. I did want to ask you, though, you've said that there's no decentralized version of a stablecoin that could be or should be exempt from having to obtain a bank charter because the inherent risk is in the instrument representing something that it's not able to guarantee, you know, that it can be converted into dollars. Many proponents of Bitcoin and decentralized stablecoins are people from countries like Argentina who have seen the government wipe out their family's life savings, for instance, when those governments have devalued their currencies. How would you answer people who say that your solution leaves them exposed to a different type of risk? Well, first of all, what they're trying to do there is to use the US dollar as an alternative form of, of, of a monetary instrument there. And frankly, the U.S. dollar is a creation of the U.S. government, and it's it's the responsibility of the U.S. government to ensure the stability of that system. Um, if they want to use Bitcoin or some other private instrument that is its own unit of account, this bill doesn't stop them from doing that. They're welcome to do that. But what we saw with the euro dollar market, for example, in the lead up to the 2008 crisis is a number of banks and actors outside the United States created deposits that functioned like US dollar deposits in good times right up until a moment of systemic risk. And at the point at which those European institutions realized they could not access the Federal Reserve and the monetary authority of the United States in those crisis moments when all the other financial institutions were, they were faced with a, with a huge liquidity crunch. And the only way they could address that problem was to go with their handout to the European Central Bank which in turn went with their handout to the Federal Reserve, which lent $500 billion in unsecured lending. So if you do have a situation where an entire population of another country living under authoritarianism is relying on the US dollar as its source of, of monetary stability, then that should be a matter of public policy in the United States because it is a matter of public policy in the United States and it will always come back to United States policymakers, whether it's now or in the middle of a crisis. Yeah, that wasn't exactly what I meant by the question, um, but uh, let's move on. I, I, I was talking more generally about even to Americans here, um, you know, that something like that situation could happen here. But I actually wanted to also ask you, you know, you did mention Libra or what was formerly known as Libra, Facebook's DM earlier. And I wondered how much of this bill is a response to that rather than about some of the other more, you know, existing stablecoins, because DM actually hasn't rolled out yet, such as USDC, Tether or DAI. It's about all of them. I mean, the, the, the Libra rollout or the DM rollout puts a, 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 a time crunch and a scale of urgency here that is at least causing other politicians to pay attention who otherwise weren't paying attention. But if you look at the, the rise of the stablecoin industry right now, it went from a few billion a few years ago to, to 20 billion now. It, who knows? It could be 200 billion in a few more years. It, it's not enough to say this isn't 
uh, a massive systemic risk now, when what actually it represents is the growth of a systemic risk right now. We don't wait until the industry becomes too big to fail before we say we should regulate it. And we don't wait until the crisis moment when depositors are literally facing huge losses in their balances before we regulate it. That's exactly the lesson that we're trying to learn from the history of shadow banking is it's too late at that point. It's too late to wait until the, the risk is literally on top of you and about to crush you. You have to address it on the upswing, and that's what we're doing. By focusing so narrowly on this one issue, do you think that this bill could squash a lot of fintech and blockchain innovation that could potentially disrupt banks and thereby help the un- and underbanked? Well, as I said, first of all, Rashida Tlaib proposed at the outset of, of 2020 a bill designed to create anonymous digital cash. She also proposed in October, which I helped with and was happy to, proud to help with, the Public Banking Act, which would make it far easier for new financial institutions that are designed to help communities and the public be created and to make it easy to get licensing and to get startup capital grants and technical support for their infrastructure. So we are already actually committed to building public financial infrastructure, but there's this myth that if we just let decentralized finance do its thing, what's going to happen is that it's going to somehow threaten the traditional banking system. That's not what happens. That's not what historically happens. What happens is When they get big enough to become important, they do partnerships and deals. And we're seeing that right now with USDC that just created a partnership with Visa. We're seeing that with a number of these companies that create partnerships with other banks or they're in the process of applying for banking licenses right now. And in the event that one of these decentralized networks became systemically important and had billions and billions of dollars of trading activity or or average consumer activity, you can be guaranteed that the big financial actors would get their, their, their grips into it. So we frankly don't think that uh, that sort of an individual running a node at home is actually going to be a serious challenger to the combined power of Wall Street. What has actually challenged that power throughout history was a collective action of people rising up and demanding public alternatives through public policy. And it's things like postal banks, Fed accounts and e-cash that can actually provide that without the systemic risk of shadow banking. And so at the moment, do you see any path forward for this bill to be passed? Well, uh, Representative uh, Lynch is is currently the chair of the FinTech Task Force in the House. Um, And, you know, we introduced at the end of this session because uh, Libra was making announcements to come out in January. We wanted to make sure that this was out there to sort of not let Libra get ahead of things. But also because uh, uh, the uh, control of the currency, the OCC, uh, Mr. Brooks, has been talking about issuing a special purpose payments charter, which would effectively sidestep the regulatory oversight of the Fed and the FDIC and, and engage in a kind of unilateral action which, for which he really doesn't have statutory authority to give a free pass to these fintech actors to engage in the kind of risky behaviour we're worried about. So we want to make sure that people understand that there is a progressive alternative to these Republican kind of industry-friendly and largely corrupt uh, models that, that are going to repeat the same mistakes that led to the global financial crisis before it's too late. And, okay. and you know, as things change, the hope is that uh, this issue will become more and more prominent and more people will, will get on board when they realise how important it is. We're seeing right now the G7 just said there's a need to regulate digital currency more broadly. Uh, the, the ECB has been saying that stable coins represent a systemic risk. So I think that this is an issue whose time has come and Representative Tlaib, Representative Lynch, Representative Garcia are at the, the front of the wave on that. I believe this is the first serious attempt to regulate stable coins in the United States and I hope others will get on board. Okay. Well, uh, Brian Brooks was a previous guest on my show, Unchained, so listeners should check that out. Um, But Rowan, it's been great talking to you. Thank you so much for sharing your views and coming on Unconfirmed. Thank you for having me. Don't forget, next up is the weekly news recap. Stick around for This Week in Crypto after this short break. Today's episode is brought to you by Block Native. 
Block Native is the easiest way to build and trade with mempool data. Hundreds of the top DeFi projects and traders have integrated Block Native's API. They even have Mempool Explorer, the industry's first no-code environment for working with mempool data. Mempool Explorer truly brings blockchain data to life, letting you watch mainnet transactions as they happen. Through the first quarter of 2021, unconfirmed listeners get double the transaction volume on all Block Native commercial plans, as much as $25,000 in value. Visit blocknative.com/unconfirmed to get started and claim this offer. Hi everyone, thanks for tuning in to this week's news recap. First headline: US lawmakers put pressure on Mnuchin to rethink crypto wallet regulations. Rumors have been picking up that Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin plans to enact regulations on self-hosted digital wallets that would limit their privacy. Ohio Congressman Warren Davidson, a previous guest on Unchained, tweeted his objection to any, quote, burdensome regulations that might be put in place by Mnuchin before his term ends in January. Davidson posted the full content of a letter addressed to the Treasury Secretary, signed by himself and three congressional colleagues, highlighting their concerns that such regulations could hinder the ability of American entrepreneurs to compete while not accomplishing the goals of fighting illicit activity. Circle CEO and founder Jeremy Allaire has also responded to the rumors, posting the full text of a letter he sent to the senior staff of the U.S. Treasury Department on Twitter. Allaire called this a, quote, critical moment for the crypto and digital currency industry, adding that the U.S. government, quote, may be putting a massive transformation at risk. He criticized the suggestion that this regulation might be pushed forward without congressional review or meaningful industry engagement. Last month, we covered this topic in detail on Unchained with Jake Chervinsky and Kristen Smith. If you missed it, this episode is a must-listen. Next headline, G7 regulators come for cryptocurrencies. Finance ministers and central bankers from the group of seven G7 advanced economies are sounding the alarm on digital currencies, calling for regulation with a new sense of urgency, highlighted by what they say is the potential for, quote, use for malign purposes and illicit activities, The U.S. Treasury Department released this statement on Monday after a virtual meeting of G7 officials, echoing a joint statement in October, which acknowledged that digital payments could improve access to financial services while decreasing costs as long as they were, quote, appropriately supervised and regulated. German Finance Minister Olaf Scholz said, quote, we must do everything possible to make sure the currency monopoly remains in the hands of states. Stricture regulations have already arrived in France, where the Ministry of Finance formally tightened know-your-customer requirements for crypto, unveiling higher standards prohibiting anonymous crypto accounts. The decision is reportedly related to recent terrorist attacks in France that were allegedly funded using cryptocurrencies. In addition to the new KYC regulations, registration for crypto-to-crypto exchanges may also be on the way in France. Next headline, Mass Mutual invests $100 million in Bitcoin. Massachusetts Mutual Life Insurance Company invested in $100 million worth of Bitcoin. Mass Mutual purchased the first cryptocurrency through NYDIG, the New York-based fund known for managing billions of dollars in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, while also acquiring a $5 million minority stake in NYDIG itself in the process. Next headline. MicroStrategy to sell $550 million convertible note offering to buy Bitcoin. The company that started this trend, MicroStrategy, will issue debt in the form of convertible notes that would allow it to buy even more Bitcoin. 
This news comes months after the company announced it was buying Bitcoin as a hedge against inflation. MicroStrategy plans to offer the notes privately to qualified institutions. The debts will bear an annualized interest rate of 0.75% payable semi-annually, with the notes reaching maturation at the end of 2025. A day after the announcement, Citigroup analysts downgraded MicroStrategy's stock to sell, saying the recent rally in its stock was overextended. Citi described the plan to raise additional money to buy Bitcoin via convertible notes as, quote, aggressive and a possible, quote, deal breaker for software investors. The downgrade sent the stock tumbling after months of bullish activity. Interestingly, as MicroStrategy's stock has risen precipitously since the summer, Block Research Analyst Ryan Todd discovered that the third largest buyer of the company's stock this year has been Renaissance Technologies, a mysterious but extremely successful hedge fund known for its incredible returns. Next headline, more crypto companies apply for bank charters. Following Kraken and Avanti, at least two more companies in the crypto sphere want to be banks, with Bitcoin payment startup BitPay venturing to create a national bank in Georgia and crypto services firm and stablecoin issuer Paxos filing paperwork to become a federally regulated U.S. bank. BitPay's proposed bank would be known as the BitPay National Trust Bank, and Paxos, which is powering payments for PayPal's cryptocurrency service, would operate its bank out of New York. Next headline. Square to invest $10 million for Bitcoin clean energy. In addition to announcing its intention to become net zero carbon by 2030, Square also announced the Bitcoin Clean Energy Investment Initiative. The company pledged $10 million in support to companies who will, quote, help drive adoption and efficiency of renewables within the Bitcoin ecosystem. In the company's statement, Square co-founder and CEO Jack Dorsey said, quote, We believe that cryptocurrency will eventually be powered completely by clean power, eliminating its carbon footprint and driving adoption of renewables globally. Published estimates indicate Bitcoin already consumes a significant amount of clean energy, and we hope that Square's investment initiative will accelerate this conversion to renewable energy. Next headline, Bitwise launches first crypto index publicly traded in the U.S., The Bitwise 10 crypto index fund began trading Wednesday under the ticker BITW. The fund tracks a diversified and market cap weighted index of the 10 largest cryptos and debuted with $120 million in assets under management. The fund was up 184% on a year-to-year basis, outperforming a standalone position in Bitcoin. Bitwise Chief Investment Officer Matt Hogan, a previous guest on my podcasts, tweeted Thursday morning that the fund was the fourth most active ticker on OTCQX. Next headline, the economics of Ethereum's internet bond. If you were interested in the concepts discussed with Ryan Watkins and Wilson Withiam of Masari about how ETH, the asset, changes with with the arrival of Ethereum 2.0, Bankless recently published a summary of a white paper published by Colin Myers and Mara Schmidt that delves into the financial model and economics of ETH 2.0. In the paper, they compare staked ETH to what is known as a contractor license bond, which construction professionals are required to purchase before they can perform construction work. With this real-life analogy, they explain how ETH 2.0 is similar and different, concluding, quote, an internet bond is a new type of incentivized digital work agreement that, in a more mature state, can be best described as a hybrid perpetual bond with debt and equity-like characteristics. In case you missed it, be sure to check out the episode with Ryan Watkins and Wilson Withiam on Unchained discussing this exact topic. Time for fun bits. 
First headline under FunBits, Masari's Crypto Theses for 2021. Masari has published his 2021 Crypto Theses written by founder Ryan Selkis, aka 2-Bit Idiot. And this report calls out key trends in the space along with predictions for 2021. Highlights include its take on Bitcoin. Quote, the world's top institutional money managers have, fina- have finally taken public positions that make it socially acceptable for their colleagues to jump into the fray and buy BTC, the gateway drug to the rest of crypto. On Ethereum, he says, quote, it's hard to ignore five-year-old technologies that process more than $1 trillion in real value transfers per year, a figure that has already eclipsed PayPal's. On DeFi, he says, quote, DeFi is justifiably hyped. The only thing I see slowing down the sector's momentum would be precedent-setting and maybe logic-bending regulatory crackdowns of top market projects. I'm not betting on the regulators, though. And our second fun bits is Coindesk's most influential people in crypto for 2020. Coindesk published its list of the most influential people in crypto over the past year. This year, among those on the list are several notable names who also appeared on Unchained and Unconfirmed in the last 12 months, including Andre Kronia of Yearn, Kathy Wood of ARK Investment, and Chad Cascarilla of Paxos. If you missed these interviews on the podcast, now is the perfect time to catch up. All right, that's it for the news. Thanks so much for tuning in. To learn more about Rowan and the Stable Act, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of this episode. And don't forget, we are now on YouTube. Subscribe to the Unchained Podcast YouTube channel today. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, Bossy Baker, Shashank, and the team at CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening.